Amen. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk. It is right after Nahum, and it's right before uh, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. It is a minor prophet, but it is a minor prophet with a major message. And though we have been studying through the book of Revelation, we are going to take a break for however long we're quarantined. I I want us to be back together to study the book of Revelation. I want to see your faces when we study that book. I want to hear you sing when we study that book, because we are going to jump right back in. We just finished by God's grace and his perfect timing. We had studied through chapter one with the vision of Christ, chapter two with the, uh, the, the letters to the churches, chapter two and three. And we just finished chapter three with this little overview of those seven churches. And then we stopped right as we were entering into chapter four. And chapter four is glorious. Chapter four is a choir. Chapter four is the most amazing vision of Jesus and the throne room of the Father that we have in the Bible, maybe other than just Ezekiel. It's unbelievable. And we are going to sing so many songs. I had the set list already prepared for our time, and then the coronavirus happened, then we had to stay home. But man, we have so many songs that we're going to sing, so we, we have to press pause on Revelation. We will come back to it, Lord willing, but we have to press pause on it for right now. That being said, I thought it would be appropriate for us to dive into a minor prophet that gives us a major message, especially in this time period that we are in. In a time when we are struggling to see, God, what are you doing? We're struggling to to see his character on display. We're struggling to trust him. We're wondering, what is it that you're up to? And the book of Habakkuk asks those questions and answers those questions. But before we dive into this book, we have to do just a little bit of an introduction to the book as a whole. Because if we don't know where we're going, if we don't know what is supposed to be happening as we see this section of scripture, then we're going to be misled and misguided and just not looking out for the right things. When I was growing up, uh, my family, we were always doing puzzles. We were so into puzzles. We love puzzles. And I remember I, I always had Star Wars puzzles because Star Wars is cool, and uh, you can disagree me with disagree with me on that, but you'd be wrong. Uh, Star Wars is amazing. So we would have these Star Wars puzzles, and in these Star Wars puzzles, uh, there was this one amazing one that had a, a scene from one of the movies, and then you could turn the light off, and then there would be this image that would glow in the dark through the picture. It was just amazing. We we loved puzzles. So I remember one time. I took the box, I opened it up, I threw it down, I put all the puzzle pieces around, I started making the puzzle, and I looked at the box trying to see what is it that I'm trying to make here. And I remember just having the hardest time because I couldn't figure out what what do these pieces, how do they correspond with this picture? This picture doesn't look like these pieces. And I was trying, maybe this is this one over here. And then it it dawned on me that somehow the, the wrong puzzle got put into this box. So I was looking at a picture of what I thought I was supposed to be making and what was supposed to be in front of me, but it was the wrong puzzle pieces. It was the wrong picture. It was the wrong corresponding uh, image. So I didn't know exactly what I was doing, and it was so frustrating. I remember just thinking, I can't do puzzles at all. Good news is, I found the right puzzle box for the right puzzle pieces. I still have it to this day. My kids uh, actually want to do this puzzle, the one with the glow-in-the-dark glow image on it. They want to do that with me now, and 
uh, you should see it because it's beautiful. You should come over. You should look at it. You shouldn't come over because you're supposed to stay at home. So when you can come over, you can come over and see it. It's absolutely amazing. So we're going to dive into this book, but we have to, as we dive into it, we have to see what the image is that we're supposed to be looking at. We have to see a roadmap. We have to see what is it that we're supposed to be getting from this book. And so to that end, I just want to give us two points that we're going to study this morning. Two points. Why is Habakkuk writing and why are we studying it? Okay, why is Habakkuk writing and why are we studying it? Normally at this point in our service, we would pray. We'd read scripture and then we'd pray together. And what I want us to do is I want to save the time that we would read this passage, this book. I want to save that for the very end. I want to ask God's blessing on our time now, but I want to read this at the very end with a a little bit of a clearer picture of what's going on in this book as we dialogue about it. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time, and then we'll dive in together looking at why is Habakkuk writing and why should we be studying it together. Let's ask God's blessing on our time. Father, I I love the prayer of one pastor who said it this way. What we do not know, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we do not have, please give us. What a simple and yet so profound prayer. So God, we ask you to do what we ourselves cannot do. And that is to see you as all-glorious, as all-beautiful, as all-satisfying. Show us Christ. Show us an image of Jesus in these pages that would shatter our paradigm of who you are and how you operate. That would shatter our understanding of how we should come to you and speak to you. Holy Spirit, give us understanding and open our eyes to behold wonderful things from this book. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So two points this morning. The reason that Habakkuk had for writing this book and the reason that we have for studying this book. Reason for writing, reason for studying. Number one, reason for writing. We don't really know about this man Habakkuk. We don't really know even what his name means. We have no historical background on who he was as a man, as a prophet. We don't really even know what his name means. It could either mean uh, an Akkadian name that means a little plant, or it could come from a variation of a Hebrew word that means to embrace. So it's either one of those two. Maybe it's both. I doubt that it's both. I like to think that it's both because Habakkuk is like this little plant that you could just walk right on past it and miss it. You wouldn't even see this book. You can flip through it so quickly in the Bible that you skip it all together. So I I love this idea of this little seemingly insignificant thing, this person that's on the side of the road that you don't even really see. But I love this Hebrew variation of his name that means to embrace because ultimately that's what he's struggling with. He's struggling to embrace God's purpose, God's plan, God's character, and he will come to the end of this book embracing everything that God is embracing everything that God has said and doing so with eyes of faith to believe and with a heart that clings in trust to Jesus. He is a minor prophet. Minor not because it's minor truth, minor just in its size. It's not like, you know, 66 chapters of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. There are 12 minor prophets. They start with Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. 
So Habakkuk fits right in there. And he is a prophet, but he is unique among the prophets because the prophet's job mainly was for God to give a message and the prophet to speak on God's behalf to the people. Thus saith the Lord. That's the prophet's message. That's what a prophet's job description was. God speaks to the prophet. The prophet says, this is what God has said. Habakkuk doesn't speak to the people on God's behalf. He actually speaks directly to God. Right at the very outset of this book, he speaks right to God and he asks God questions. He really calls God's account, God's actions into account. He's wondering, God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Where are you? So he's different in the prophets because he's not speaking from God to the people, but actually directly to God himself. Where does he fit? Where does this section fit in the entirety of the Bible and in the scope of human history? If you would allow me just a couple minutes on historical background. This might seem pedantic. I don't think that it is. I think it's very, very important because it will fit in with exactly the message that Habakkuk is giving to us as he's writing. The, the, exactly the reason why he's, he's complaining in this book with God. So let's go all the way back to the beginning of Saul reigning as the first king of Israel. Okay, Saul is the first king of Israel. Second king is who? That's right, it's David. Third king uh, is David's son, Solomon. Uh, Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, you remember, there's a united kingdom. Everybody's fine. The 12 tribes are doing great. Solomon has a son. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, decides to reign very foolishly. He's a very foolish young man. And he reigns very foolishly. And because of that, he splits the kingdom. Uh, This is the divided monarchy. There are 10 tribes in the north called Israel, two tribes in the south called Judah. And so Rehoboam divides the kingdom. A man named Jeroboam is the one who takes those 10 tribes in the north and is king over the northern kingdom. That happens in 930 BC. So 930 BC, and you remember BC counts down, right? It counts down to 1 BC and then 1 AD and then forward to 2020 AD. So Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. The 10 northern tribes, always wicked. They only do wicked things. They only have wicked kings. There is never one righteous king in the north. And therefore, God says through prophets, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to bring in a a power, a nation that's going to destroy you and take you away in captivity, in my judgment, because of your idolatry. That power is Assyria in the north, and they're going to come into the northern tribes in Israel in 722 BC and take them away. If you fast forward, now Israel is taken away. They're gone. They've been exiled in captivity. You have two tribes in the south in Judah, and they remain. And if you fast forward about 100 years to 630 BC, you have four main people groups, four main nations that are in control of land and power at that time. You have Judah, two tribes in the southern part of Israel, very small, very insignificant, but God's chosen people. You have Assyria in the north that used to be the top dog, king of the hill, but they are declining and their their king is going to die. You have Egypt, who also is on the decline, but still is going to play a major part in this. And then you have Babylon. Uh, In Habakkuk, they are referred to as the Chaldeans. They are an up-and-coming power with a man who is ruling and reigning in absolute violence and terror. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. You know him from the book of Daniel. He's a terrible man. And this kind of neo-Babylonian empire that's just beginning is known worldwide for their violence, their wickedness, their evil. 
They're the kind of people that you would look at, and if we were alive back then and something terrible happened and wiped out the whole country, we would think, yeah, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's good that they're gone because God has judged them. They're horrifically terrifying. Nobody wants to mess with them. Those are the four powers. Now, fast forward a little bit to 622 B.C., A man named Josiah, actually a boy named Josiah, at eight years old, is installed as king of Judah. And he brings about reforms in the southern kingdom, in Judah, with those two tribes. He takes them away from idolatry and follows God. They celebrate Passover. They find the book of the law in 622 BC. They find the Bible. The Bible had been lost. The Torah had been lost. They find it, they recover it, they repent, they turn back to God, and everything is going great. Then, the pharaoh of Egypt, who is named Necho II, sends a letter to Josiah, who is the king of Judah. And he just simply says, I'm going to go fight Assyria. Can I take my army through your land? Josiah doesn't like that idea. He's afraid that the people will be terrified of that. So he says, no. You're not allowed to take your people through my country. Nico doesn't like that and decides, I'm going to do it anyway. So he runs his army right through Judah. Josiah doesn't like that, so he decides, we're going to fight you. And it's very interesting because the king would normally stay back, watch the battle, see what was going on, and then say, did we, did we win? Do we need to retreat? What's going on? Josiah decides, I'm going to dress up like one of a, a common citizen, common soldier, go to the front lines and fight. Very courageous also very stupid, and decides, uh, I'm going to fight on the front lines, and he's killed. Nico kills him. By the way, this is all in your Bibles in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23, and in 2 Chronicles chapter 34 and 35. So this is 609 BC. Josiah is killed, and so one of his sons, Jehoiahaz, takes the throne. Josiah had been leading them, all all of Judah, he had been leading them back to the Lord, And Jehoiahaz then turns them right back into idolatry. The pharaoh, Necho II, comes back to Judah after killing Josiah and going to fight Assyria, comes back to Judah and takes Jehoiahaz captive, takes him back to Egypt and says, you know what, you're going to die here. I hate Israel, I hate Judah, I'm going to take you prisoner and you're going to die here. Jehoiahaz uh, dies uh, in captivity in Egypt. So Nico says, I will install the king that I want to be on the throne in Judah because I want to be able to uh, play him and use him as a puppet. So he puts Jehoiahaz's brother, a man named Eliakim, on the throne. Uh, Nico actually changes his name to uh, Jehoiakim, says, you know what, I'm going to rule you so much and be your puppet master so much that I'm going to change your name from Eliakim to Jehoiakim. And for 11 years, Jehoiakim leads Judah into idolatry, into evil, into destruction, where all of the reforms that Josiah had made, Jehoiakim destroys and makes them all go away. By the way, Jehoiakim is mentioned, that king is mentioned in the book of Jeremiah. So Habakkuk and Jeremiah are writing around the same time. So there's our history lesson. This is the time period that Habakkuk is writing. He has seen Josiah turn God's people back to God. He's seen reforms. He's seen revival. He's seen repentance. And now he sees his God's chosen people turning away, his own countrymen turning back to idols away from worshiping God. And he's going to cry out, and his first question is going to be, God, why aren't you letting, why are you letting this happen? Why aren't you stopping this? 
God, why aren't you stepping in? We were going the right way. And then Josiah, in, in courage, but maybe a little bit of foolishness, went to the front lines, was killed. God, who are you going to raise up to, to turn us back to you? And why are you allowing this evil to happen through your own people in your own country? Why are you letting this idolatry happen? It's just getting worse. God, why aren't you stepping in? God's going to answer him and say, Habakkuk, I will step in. And I will bring judgment. I will judge evil. I'm not turning a blind eye to evil. I'm going to judge evil. But I'm going to judge evil using the Babylonians, that power that nobody liked, that everybody was afraid of, and they are known for being wicked, idolatrous, evil people. I'm going to use them to judge your people. And Habakkuk's going to say, I don't like that. That doesn't make sense to me. To use a more wicked people group to judge a less wicked people group, that doesn't seem right, just, righteous. That shouldn't be allowed. So first, Habakkuk says, God, why aren't you stepping in to do something about your people going astray? And then secondly, God says, I'm going to step in to do something. And Habakkuk says, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like that plan. That's a bad plan. By the way, right after Habakkuk writes his book, a new leader a new world power, this Babylonian empire with Nebuchadnezzar at the helm is going to pass through Judah, fight Egypt in the battle of Carchemish. This is in 605 BC and they will destroy Egypt for all intents and purposes. Egypt is gone. Assyria is gone, destroyed by Egypt. Egypt is gone, destroyed by Babylon. And now it's just Babylon and Judah. And you know, in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar is going to go into Judah. He's going to take over. He's going to destroy that southern kingdom. He's going to lead captive all of the the people that are left alive. He's going to lead them into Babylon. And you know some of those people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel. The entire book of Daniel is the fulfillment of what God says he's going to do in the book of Habakkuk. So why is Habakkuk writing? He's writing because he sees evil happening in his own people. And he says, God, why are you tolerating this? Why are you allowing this to happen? What are you up to? And where are you? And then when God answers, graciously answers, I'm doing something. Habakkuk says, I don't like what you're doing. I don't like that plan. And God's going to have a dialogue with Habakkuk. It's the most amazing. We get to eavesdrop, as it were, on the prayer closet of Habakkuk. We get to go in as he's crying out to God the most intimate of times. We get to listen to their dialogue. And it's just astounding. So that's the reason Habakkuk has for writing. What about for us? Why? This is point number two. Why are we going to study this book? What are the reasons that we have for studying? We know Habakkuk's reason for writing. Why are we going to study this book? I want to give you four reasons. Four reasons why we should study this book. Reason number one, very clearly, very simply, We all ask questions of God like Habakkuk does. We all ask questions like Habakkuk. Habakkuk asks two questions. Where are you, God? And what are you doing? Where are you and what are you doing? And it only takes living long enough as a believer before you ask God those questions, right? It only takes living long enough following God to say, what are you doing? I, I, I see something that you're doing or you're not doing. What are you doing? Why are you doing it this way? Why did you do it this way? Why didn't you do it this way? This way seemed a lot better. What are you doing, God? Habakkuk asks two questions. There are two questions really under the banners of timing. God, I don't like your timing. 
and tolerance. God, why are you allowing things to happen? The wickedness in, in Judah and the wickedness in Babylon. A good subtitle for this book would be, Is God Absent? Is God Absent? God, where are you? If you're honest with your own heart, you've asked that question before. Okay, God, where are you? Okay, God, what are you doing? I know you're everywhere. I know theologically we use big words like omnipresent. That means you're everywhere. You're present everywhere. But where are you now? Why haven't you shown up? Why haven't you done anything? Do you see the evil that's being done to me? Do you see the oppression? Do you see the suffering? Do you see the trial? Do you see? Where are you? Do you see? And then we so quickly move to, do you even care? Do you even care? It might not be those specific questions, but we all ask questions of God. Really, the book of Habakkuk is the book of Job in miniature form. It's a very small version of the book of Job. One of the things that I love about Habakkuk and the the book of Job is that they remind us that though we tend to think that suffering is this phenomenal occurrence, like why me? Why is this happening? Habakkuk and Job, and really the entirety of the Bible, remind us that suffering is not abnormal. Suffering is not something that we shouldn't expect. Life is fun, life is good, life is enjoyable, and then it seems like suffering just derails it. And we're going a great direction, suffering destroys it. But Habakkuk shows us, and the book of Job shows us, that suffering isn't an interruption in our lives. It's a transcendent reality in our lives. You will suffer if you survive long enough. I don't know about you, but I used to think that guys like Habakkuk and Job were exceptions. They were exceptions, that no one ever really suffered like this. These are just strange occurrences in the Bible, but nobody ever really suffers like this. But Brothers and sisters, I don't think that anymore. I don't think that anymore. I've lived long enough to see suffering, to hear suffering. We've even experienced some of that over the course of of this chaotic season of the coronavirus. We've had had precious little ones that are just a uh, a few hours old that have died. Suffering that is so real and so visceral and so palpable that it just, it knocks the wind out of our souls. You've seen it in your life. You've experienced it in your life. You know what it looks like to go through something that just takes you completely out of the ballgame. You don't know how to respond. You don't know how to act. So the question is, where do we turn when life doesn't make any sense at all? When God doesn't seem caring? When God doesn't seem near? When God doesn't seem active? Where do we turn? These are all questions that challenge us. And the only reason that they do that is because we tend to let our circumstances dictate our theology. This is one of the things that we see in the book of Habakkuk, one of the things we see in the book of Job, one of the things that we see elsewhere in the Bible, that our circumstances can so quickly dictate the way that we believe and see God. They dictate our theology. We see our circumstances as bad, and therefore we say, God, you must be bad. We see our circumstances as, you know, prolonged suffering, and we go, God, you must not care about me. But instead of drawing a line from our circumstances to the character of God, we need to draw a line from God's character to our circumstances to see our circumstances in light of God's character. One pastor gives an example, saying, let's say it's in the middle of the day, 
The sun is shining brightly, not a cloud in the sky, but you're in a basement somewhere and the light's not shining through. We would never be foolish enough to say there must not be a sun anymore. But that's exactly what we do with God in our circumstances. We're in the basement of suffering. We can't see the light of God's goodness. And therefore we say his goodness must not exist. Habakkuk is going to remind us that as we ask those questions that come from a place of honesty, I love this, they're from a place of honesty, and as we ask them, God will answer. One of the things that I love about the book of Habakkuk is that he's giving us permission and an allowance to go before God in this way. It's a shockingly honest message, but he's not alone in this. The book of Malachi, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Job, and Habakkuk, they all argue with God. Now they do it very well. And we're going to talk about how they argue and lament and how they bring a a very technical term in the Hebrew, a complaint against God. And all it is just to, to set your mind on the course of understanding Habakkuk, a complaint against God by a prophet is saying, God, you've revealed your character to me and you've told me who you are. And then this is happening in my life. And the two don't seem to correlate. They don't seem to go together. You've told me who you are, and this is what's happening in my life, and they don't seem to match. Help me understand how they match. That's a complaint. That's arguing a case before God and saying, God, I know who you are based off of Scripture, but I know what I'm going through, and it doesn't seem like they match. Can you help me understand? It's not doubting God saying, I don't think you exist. If you didn't think God existed, you wouldn't even go to him in the first place. So this is from a place of faith. It's from a place of saying, God, I know who you are. I trust you, but I'm struggling. Can you please help me? This is beautiful biblical lament. And we'll talk about that more next week. So I want to study this book because, number one, we all ask questions like Habakkuk. Some of us, myself included, I have asked his exact questions. God, how long? How long are you going to wait? How long are you going to let me go through this? How long? We've all asked the questions that Habakkuk asks. Number two, second reason why I want to study this book is we all want answers like Habakkuk has, like he wants, like he desires, and like he's given. We all want answers. The amazing reality in this book is that when Habakkuk asks God these two questions, how long are you going to tolerate this? And then I don't like the way you're going to fix it. What are you up to? God answers those questions. God in his grace and his kindness says, I'll answer you. Bring a question to me and I'll answer you. But here's the reality and here's where Habakkuk is going to teach us so much. Habakkuk asks a question and he wants a certain answer from God and he doesn't get the answer that he wants. And if you are like me, you know that is our experience as believers. We say, God, I am going to ask you a question. I'm going to pray and I want a specific response and I don't get it. We pray these prayers to God, and God seems to answer us in ways that we don't like. I wonder if we were to make a percentage, like a pie chart of all of the prayers that we've ever prayed. I wonder what percentage of all those prayers that we've ever prayed that we would feel we got the answer that we were wanting. What percentage do you think it would be? Habakkuk asks two main questions, and both of the answers that he gets to those two questions, he doesn't like. He is, he is 0 for 2 on questions and answers that he wants to hear from God. Sometimes God gives it to us in the way that we don't want him, the answers that we don't want. Sometimes it's just not the answer that we want or the way that we don't want it. Habakkuk is going to struggle through this. We tend to want God to answer our prayers the way that we want them to be answers, and when they're not answered that way, we struggle. 
Habakkuk teaches us that there are never any pat answers. And even when God speaks, even when God answers Habakkuk, there's still mystery. This is a, an amazing and very seriously important question or uh, important point to understand. When we ask God questions, sometimes he answers and we still have questions. There's, there's still mystery. Even in his answer, we go, okay, thanks. Wait, hang on. I have another question. That's what Habakkuk is going to do. So many different questions arise, and we're going to tackle a lot of them in this book. Questions of God's justice, questions of human responsibility, questions of divine sovereignty, questions of God's mercy, questions of God's righteousness. But the bottom line is this. We end up having more questions of God because, number one, life isn't easy, and number two, we're not God. That's why we struggle with these questions. Life is very hard, and we aren't God. And so all of these questions are going to come up. And Habakkuk is a theologically rich and extraordinarily relevant book in the way that it negotiates human suffering and all the confusion and questions that come from it, the mystery that comes from it. We all ask questions just like Habakkuk. We all want answers like Habakkuk wants. And sometimes we all get those answers the way that Habakkuk got it, where we go, thanks, but I still don't understand. Or thanks, but I still don't like it. Habakkuk has a problem. He's a prophet with a problem. And his problem is God. That's his problem. He's, he has a problem with God's silence. God, why aren't you jumping in and speaking? He has a problem with God's statements that God brings to him. Thank you for answering me, God, but I don't like that answer. Habakkuk has a problem. And he takes it to God. And if I could underline just kind of a foundational point for us to have in our tool belt as we go to study this book, the answer that God gives underneath all of it is Habakkuk, will you trust me? Will you trust me? And that leads to point number three, third reason why we want to study this book together. We all need faith like Habakkuk. We all need faith like Habakkuk. One pastor says it this way, Habakkuk's prayer brings this reply, the just will live by faith on high. The just shall live by faith. That's the message of the book of Habakkuk. It's the theme verse in chapter two, verse four. This is the theme verse of the book of Habakkuk. The just, the righteous will live by faith. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. Habakkuk chapter two, verse four. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. In Romans chapter one, verse 17, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, and in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, which if you know chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, that's that hall of fame of faith by faith by faith by faith. The, the precursor to that is Habakkuk. The just will live by faith, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. The righteous will live by faith, and here's what it looks like to live by faith, Hebrews chapter 11. We need faith like Habakkuk. The, the bottom line is we will never have all of the answers for all of life's darkest moments. We never will. Maybe you're going through one right now. Maybe in the middle of this coronavirus, you are saying, okay, God, why? Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you can't pay your mortgage bill. Maybe you're wondering where money for the next meal is going to come. And you say, God, I don't understand. God, where are you? What are you doing? What are you waiting for? Why aren't you showing up now? We will never have all of the answers for these dark moments in life. Maybe one day we will know. 
Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 13 at the very end of that chapter? Paul says, we don't know now, but one day we will know as we are known now. We will know then fully as we are known now. One day maybe we will know, but right now we don't know everything. We can't see God's plan. We can't understand it. So for now, the answer is God will, from God, will you trust me? God's asking us, God, just like he's asking Habakkuk, will you trust me? Will you trust me? We don't have all the answers. And that's why God says, you've just got to trust me right now. You've got to trust me. Raymond Calkins, a commentator on this book, says it this way. There is no Old Testament book that is able to do more for the burdened souls of men or to raise them to higher levels of hope and confidence than the brief prophecy of Habakkuk. Hardly a book in the Bible is constructed on such simple and majestic lines. These three chapters stand like three august columns, side by side, each complete in itself, unparalleled in their power and appeal. Search the Bible through, and you will find nothing so matchless in concentrated power as these three chapters of the book of Habakkuk. Of the outward circumstances of the prophet's life, we don't really know anything. But here is a man with a soul sensitive to evil, yet firm in his faith in an omnipotent God. And this faith he has uttered with force and eloquence, a literary power, which has caused his words to become a permanent part of the literature of the soul. We all need faith like Habakkuk has faith. And we're going to see his faith on display because he's struggling in chapter one. He's struggling in chapter two and he is transformed at the end of chapter three. And the reason why he's transformed is point number four. The fourth reason that we have for studying this book. We all need to value God above all things like Habakkuk. We all need to value God above all things like Habakkuk does. We all need to value God above comfort, above freedom from suffering, above freedom from pain, above ease. We need to value God far beyond those things. He's better than anything this world has to offer. Habakkuk begins with a sob and ends with a song. He begins by arguing with God and then he ends by affirming God's character. And this transformation is what I desperately want from my life And I desperately want it for the life of our church. And the people around us in this world, they need to see this lived out. They need to see this transformation that when all around our soul gives way, God is our hope and stay. That we cling to him, just like we sang earlier this morning, that the the waves that, that, that break us into the rock of Christ even the sorrow and the suffering that that clings us or that flings us to Christ so that we cling to him, those waves are things that we love. Even though they're terrible to have to go through, we want whatever it takes to bring us to cling to Christ. We want him. We need to know how to live life when everything around us is taken away. And Habakkuk goes through that. We see it happen right in front of our eyes as we read this book. We need to be reminded, and we need to believe that the worth of God is not dependent upon our comfort or our blessings. It's not dependent on those things. Worshiping God is decently easy when life is easy. But that's not really worshiping God. 
That's worshiping the benefits that God has given and the blessings that God has given. It's not really worshiping God. And Habakkuk is here to remind us that God is worthy of worship when everything going right is seen around us and saved around us. When we enjoy everything going right, God is worthy of our worship when everything around us is going wrong. God is worthy of our affections. He's worthy of our worship, our praise, our adoration. And we need to cling to him. It's like C.S. Lewis said, in the middle of our pain, God's shouting. He's shouting something. He whispers in the good moments of life, but he shouts in our pain. And he's shouting, will you trust me? I'm going to prove to you that I'm enough if you would cling to me in faith. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, and because God is my shepherd, we know the translation, I shall not want. But the better translation is, there is nothing that I need that I'm lacking. Because I have him, I have everything that I need. We're going to see at the end of chapter 3, Habakkuk has a lot of things that we would say, those are necessities, Habakkuk. If you lose those, you might lose your life. And Habakkuk's going to say, if I lose those, but I still have God, I have everything that I need to praise and to exalt and to exult in him. I have everything I need. It's like Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16, in jail, still able to sing. (laughs) Because I have God and you can't take God away from me. I have everything that I need to praise in the midst of the storm because I have God. I want us to learn to love God for who he is, for what he's done, and for what he is worth. So, we all ask questions like Habakkuk asks. We all want answers like Habakkuk wants, and sometimes we get the same kinds of answers that Habakkuk gets. We all struggle with these things. We all understand that sorrow and suffering just presses in on us and we're wondering, God, where are you? And I I wish you would speak to me. I wish you would answer me. Please help. We all need faith. We all need faith. We all need faith like Habakkuk to say, the righteous, the just will live by faith. God, I don't know all the answers, but I, I will trust you because I know your character. And we all need this transformation like Habakkuk has where we cling to God and we say, God, you're more valuable than anything this world has to offer. That's, that's the whole point of our church. That's the mission statement of our church plan. We planted a church so that we could shepherd people to savor the glory of God and to say, God, you're better than anything this world has to offer. You're better than all of it. To live is Christ, to die is gain. That means everything in this world that I lose when I die and I just gain Jesus, Jesus by far is better than all of it. So that's why we're going to study this book. We have the reason for Habakkuk writing. We see that. And we have a reason for studying. Four reasons for studying this book together. So I just, I invite you to dig in with me. Uh, Dive in together. Read this book. We're going to do that in just a few minutes. But read this book. Maybe every day over the course of these next few weeks as we study this book together. Invite your friends. Invite your family to hear the message of Habakkuk. Such an honest, personal message that you and I will say, I've been there before. And I want to end where Habakkuk ends. We need this book. And we're going to dive in. We're going to take some time. We could preach it in one sermon. It's beautifully outlined. It's beautifully written. We could easily preach it in one sermon, but we're going to dive in deeply. I love the way John Piper says it. Raking is easy, but all you get is leaves. Digging is hard work, but sometimes you get diamonds. So we're going to dig. We're going to dig in together. One last quote before we end. Heath Thomas, a commentator on this book, says it this way. Well, the message of Habakkuk is a book that, as we read, might stick in our throats. 
it remains a feast for those who will take the time to dine at the table. Take time to dine at the table. As we read slowly, as we read intentionally, Habakkuk helps us taste the bread of life. For her faithful witness to God, the church must learn and listen, must learn and listen and respond to the cadence of this relevant voice in the symphony of the scriptures. So what I want to do as we close our time this morning is read this book. It's three chapters. They're very short. I want to read it together, slowly, intentionally. I want us to hear the words, and feel the emotions. Habakkuk's going to bring a question. God's going to answer. Habakkuk's going to bring another question. God's going to answer. And then Habakkuk's going to sing a song. His final response is so transformative that he sings. He can't hold it in and just speak it. He's going to sing it. So let's read it together, and then we'll ask God's blessing on our study through this book. And then I want us to close by singing two songs that I believe Habakkuk could have written. They're songs that come from a place that Habakkuk was in of calling upon the Lord from deep distresses and sorrows and ultimately proclaiming, God, you're sovereign over me and I know that your plans are good. Let's read Habakkuk chapter one, starting in verse one. The oracle or burden which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry to you of violence, but you don't save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Look among the nations, Habakkuk. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I'm doing something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans or Babylonians, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the whole earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded. They are feared. Their injustice and authority originate within themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they'll sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. Those whose strength is their God. God, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. But your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. So why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? 
Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, gather them together in their fishing net, and therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net because through these things their catch is large, their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? I will stand on my guard post and I will station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what you will speak to me and how I may reply when I'm reproved. Then the Lord answered me, and he said, Record the vision. Inscribe it on the tablets, so that the one who reads it may run. For the, the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will certainly come. It won't delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but... The righteous will live by faith. Furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol. He is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Will not all these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what's not his, for how long makes himself rich with loans? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. Because you have looted many nations, all the remainder of the peoples will loot you. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all of its inhabitants, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You've devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. You are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that the peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just like the waters cover the seas. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom, even to make them drunk so as to see their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The, the cup is in the Lord's right hand and will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town and all of its inhabitants. What profit is the idol when the makers carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood. For its maker trusts his own handiwork. When he fashions speechless idols, woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, and to a mute stone, arise. If this is your teacher, behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all inside of it. But the Lord, he is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shigianoth. 
Lord, I have heard the report about you and I fear. Oh Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praises. His radiance is like the sunlight. His rays flashing from his hand. There is is hiding of his power. Before him goes out like pestilence. The plague comes out after him. He stands and surveys the whole earth. He looks and startles the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed, but God's ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Did the Lord rage against the rivers or was your anger against the rivers or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn, Selah. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil, and you laid him open from thigh to neck, Selah. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exultation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. But you trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. I heard all of this and my inward parts trembled. At the sound of my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. And in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. And though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and he makes me to walk on high places. This is for the choir director on my stringed instruments. Father, we are so excited about this study. We are blown away by the amazing response that Habakkuk gives and the transformation that we see that though everything around him would go away and be destroyed, yet he still sings. He still exults in the God of his salvation. God, we want to be people like that. That no matter what happens around us, no matter what comes, no matter what leaves, no matter what we gain, no matter what we lose, that we would in quiet patience, trust, and hope. Trust in you.